lot of the strategies I see are actually roadmaps on steroids. We take some very big idea, very ambitious. Let's do a SaaS product that does X, Y, and Z. Then we decide this is the strategy and we give it as an assignment, basically, to the product organization. And from then on, it turns into this huge project. And I found that often these strategies fail just because it's a very big bet, not validated enough. We didn't discover the opportunity enough. So that's why I wrote the article about Must. It's based on some of my own experiences and also gives a lot of examples from other companies. And the core principle there is we need to build our strategy around opportunities. Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Itamar Gilad, who's currently working as a product coach. Itamar writes a popular product management newsletter. He created a number of product frameworks, including GIST and the Confidence Meter. We'll talk about these in this episode. And previously, Itamar was a product manager at Google, Microsoft, and a number of startups. Hi, Itamar. How are you doing? Hi. Very well. Thank you for having me. Excited discussion. My pleasure. Before we dive into today's topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I started out as an engineer back in the mid-1990s. I worked at IBM, then I worked for a startup, and then I slightly switched to the dark side and became a product manager. And one of my first roles was with Microsoft for a number of years. And I kept on doing product management at different levels for about 15 years. My last position was at Google, where I worked a little bit on YouTube, but then mostly on Gmail. So some of the stuff, the good stuff in Gmail is for me. <laughs> uh, and, and, but then I realized that I need a new challenge. And I, after I quit Google, I started working with more product teams on actually trying to develop some sort of theory of why some products succeed, why some fail, why some teams actually do better. Why don't I had a lot of ideas and theories based on my experience, but working with all my clients actually helped me learn so much more. And through this process, I was able to develop a few product frameworks of my own, inspired by much smarter people than myself. And those include the ones you mentioned, the confidence meter, GIST, which have become somewhat popular, and also lesser known ones like MUST, which is a product framework for a strategy development. Maybe this is a great segue into some of the work you've been doing as a coach. We've had the chance to meet earlier last year at the Coaching the Coaches session organized by Marty Kagan and the Silicon Valley Product Group in London. That was super inspiring. And it was really a great opportunity for a number of us actually in Europe to come together and look at our practice and how we could improve it. And I think You've certainly been doing a great job publishing a lot of content out there, including some of the frameworks you've mentioned, and you just talked about must. Can you tell us a little bit about that framework? What's involved exactly? And you mentioned product strategy. How does this framework help? We talked a lot about product discovery, which of course is attributed to Marty Kagan. It was an amazing experience. He's really the godfather of product management. He inspired me. A lot and a lot of the stuff I publish is inspired by what I read from him. So I thought we need to talk a little bit more about strategy discovery and what that means. 
because a lot of the strategies I see are actually roadmaps on steroids. We take some very big idea, very ambitious. Let's do a SaaS product that does X, Y, and Z. Then we decide this is a strategy and we give it as an assignment basically to the product organization. And from then on, it turns into this huge project. And I found that often these strategies fail just because it's a very big bet, not validated enough. We didn't discover the opportunity enough. So that's why I wrote the article about must and, and it's based on some of my own experiences and also gives a lot of examples from other companies and the core principle there is we need to build our strategy around opportunities and those are usually represented as a market segment with very strong needs where we can see an opportunity to step in and create tremendous value for these people and also to create some sort of differentiation for ourselves a moat a way to grow revenue to grow a margins and to fend off competitors so the strategy has to encompass all of these parts both the product value and also the business value for us. And these things are very risky. It's really easy to look at an opportunity and say, wow, this is clearly a win, but it turns out to be not as important as you think. And just as an example, one of the projects I was involved in at Google while I was working on Gmail was Google Plus. Google saw an opportunity to step in and create an alternative to Facebook. They felt a lot of people are not happy with Facebook. They would be happy to have a Google homegrown social network. Turned out not to be true. Turned out most people were actually in no need for another social network. And we wasted mm. a tremendous amount of effort over many years in order to try to make Google Plus succeed. So that's a very classic example, and it happens in the best companies, as you can see. If we go back in time and look at how Google kind of evolved, so obviously they found a really big opportunity in search initially, and they understood that all the information is moving into the internet, but that the current solutions of the time, directory services like Yahoo and search engines that existed like Excite, were really doing a very poor job. So they formed a very famous mission to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And they stepped in with a, a solution, Google Search, which was evolved over time. So that was a home run. They really made big, found a big product market fit there. But then the strategic question around the time that Google made its IPO in the early to mid 2000s was what's next? What should Google do next? And it could have been incremental improvements to search, which of course they kept, but Google did something very interesting then. It started looking at its core again and said, we're very good with data. What are some other opportunities to do something interesting with data? So it turned out that inside Google, there was a guy, Paul Buchheit, who was really interested to develop a mail client. And mostly because Google had the technology to give almost unlimited storage and really good search. So messaging was actually a very interesting data problem. And so was social media, for example. So blogs that became very popular at the time and also user-generated video. And this is a really interesting example because Google detected the opportunity in video and tried to create something called Google Video, which was actually kind of an attempt to do YouTube, allowing people to upload their own videos and manage them. Google always struggled with social. So Google video failed, but that was just one idea of how to capture the opportunity. The fact that the idea failed doesn't mean that the opportunity is bad. 
So the next idea, and this was actually initiated by the guy who headed Google Video, was let's acquire the best startup in this field. They looked around, they found YouTube, they acquired it, and that was actually a big success. So that's the example. That's you look at what you can be good at outside your core. You look, detect opportunities, sometimes challenges too. Google detected some key challenges coming from operating systems and from browsers. So it was very natural for them to, as a defensive move, to move into these spaces. And then when you detect either an opportunity or a major threat, you move into it and you try different ideas. And the way you do this is you need to discover the opportunity. You need to validate it. You need to size it. You need to understand who are actually the people that are supposed to, to benefit from that or are involved. And you try out multiple ideas. And then the project becomes big very incrementally. Like you start with a core team. Sometimes it's just even part-time people. You just give them the opportunity and say, go ahead and check this or go ahead and see what you can do about it. And you just keep running with it. And most of the time, the opportunity turns out to be bad or we don't have any good ideas how to capture it and we let it go. But other times we actually end up and find a home run. And there are plenty of other examples of this, which are, I think are related. The very famous one is Microsoft. Microsoft was a very long time, a company that was, I hesitate to say the word, but the software house, they were specialists in developing for microcomputers, PCs of the time. That was a completely novel, they invented it basically. So when different companies needed software, Microsoft was top of the list. And one of these companies turned out to be IBM. One day they got a knock on the door and IBM came to them and said, we're thinking of launching a PC. We know that if we develop this in-house, it will take us a decade to develop the operating system. So would you like to partner with us and build operating systems? And at the time, Microsoft didn't really think that uh, there was a, a battle for the operating system. They really believed in Unix and Linux. They actually had a license to resell Linux. They never even intended to develop an operating system. They were specialists in development tools. And later on, they developed Office for Apple. So all of a sudden there was this opportunity, this big customer shows up at the door and says, build me an operating system. Is there business there at all? Maybe it's a one-off. Microsoft didn't make a lot of money off this project, by the way, directly developing PC DOS for IBM. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think the story is that Bill Gates actually was against it. But Steve Ballmer and other people were actually like, let's give it a shot. So. What they did is they created a strategic track around it. They didn't pivot the company and let's go full in on operating system. They didn't shut down the opportunity and said, no, go elsewhere and find someone else to build this for you. They invested a little bit. They went out and they bought a very cheap version of a clone of the only operating system that actually existed at the time. Some, I think, PhD student developed it. They paid that guy a few thousand dollars. They took that thing and over a number of quarters and years developed it into PC-DOS version 1.0. It became bigger and bigger, but eventually that's how they created this line of business for themselves. And importantly, in the contract with IBM, there was a clause that said that they are allowed to resell that thing. So PC-DOS didn't make a lot of money, but after the IBM PC launched, immediately Compact and other came up with clones. 
and they needed operating systems, obviously. They managed to replicate the hardware, but they needed the software. And there was only one destination, that was Microsoft. And Microsoft became an empire over that software, which they called MS-DOS, of course, and they kept reselling it again and again. And that led, that kind of launched Microsoft as the empire that we know today. So it just shows how optionality is very important in developing strategy as well. When you see an opportunity kind of knocking on your door, what do you do about it? Do you create a huge project or do you shut it down? Or maybe you just create a strategic track. Based on your experience, having coached so many teams, but also taking insight from your experience across multiple companies doing product, what would you say are some of the biggest pitfalls or traps people fall into when they're trying to devise a strategy for their product? It's the same traps that people fall into when they devise ideas for their products and features. They overly rely on opinions, on anecdotal evidence, on trends in the industry. And these things influence their thinking mm -hmm. way too much. And it's easy to get trapped in your echo chamber inside your company, people with similar opinions. You debate these things. You're all smart people. You all have experience. And once you come to a conclusion, yeah, we must, that's the next move. We must do this. And I've seen this in company after company. They have this extremely logical explanation why a certain move is the only, the one and only necessary strategic move. And without it, the company will completely collapse. That was actually the narrative for Google Plus internally, by the way. And then with this immense self-conviction that comes from the top, no one can actually stand in the way of the title. And then the small thing, by the way, if you're a middle manager, is to ride the wave. So people find ways to join the project and actually amplify it, make it even bigger. And it becomes what's called the project that is too important to fail. And this is a massive anti-pattern that is causing company after company to waste tremendous amount of resources. If you're a startup, it kills you. Absolutely. No doubt. If you're a larger company, it's pretty severe. The tricky thing is companies like Google and Amazon can afford to do a lot of those and fail and still succeed in some. So that actually creates a false signal to some people to think these companies are willing to go all in on these big bets, so should mm. we as well. Instantly, the example that comes to mind is the work Google has recently been doing with Stadia and how they ended up closing, closing shop, basically. I think some people would look at this, like you just mentioned, and think if Google is investing this amount of money into streaming games online, then we should be doing it as well. The flip side of the coin would be to look at Google and its infrastructure, its resources, its capabilities, its firepower and think, why haven't they succeeded? And yeah. I think that's a different lens. It's a not well-known fact, but a lot of products inside these mega corporations are not really profitable. They're there because the company needs to create an ecosystem because the company needs to have one of each. So they can compete, they, they will have a complete solution. But actually, there's a very few products that actually are very successful, both in terms of value to customers and in terms of financial gains. So once you feel the crunch of the economy slowing down, advertising revenue slows down, you feel a lot of things needs to be shut down because they're not profitable. And then you see 
behind the curtain. But that's the way these companies operate. And there's no right or wrong here. I think for a middle stage company, for a scale up, for a smaller enterprise, it's much riskier to operate in this way. It's much riskier to maintain these long-standing projects that actually are not benefiting anyone in any major way, but they're still there because we don't want to close them. And that's, again, an anti-pattern I see quite a bit. It's a long byproduct of these failed strategies. We invest in a big idea. It's too important to fail. We do the work. Eventually, much later than we expect, we launch it. Then we have to celebrate success because we achieved the goal, the output goal of producing the thing. And then usually there's a series of attempts to really make it a success, to drive traction with the market, with medium success usually. And the product kind of finds a niche. There are users, there are customers paying for it, but it's not a major contributor to our usage or to our revenue. And we are stuck with it. We need to keep maintaining it for a while. So that's the risk of bad strategy. If you're not careful enough, you're actually stuck with one of these middle of the road products rather than something that can really put you on a different level. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. That resonates. I'm going to go back to one other point you mentioned around optionality, which I think is really important. There is this perception or risk sometimes that going down a path might be an irreversible decision, right? So companies will say, as part of our strategy, if we choose to go down this particular route, then it will be very difficult to come back on that decision. What have been your experience of this and how do you mitigate some of the risk around this? This very important concept, I think it comes from Kanban of deferring the point of commitment. It's perfectly okay to start following the track, to go deeper and deeper, to invest with continuous kind of checkpoints to check how it's done. A company, by the way, that did this very effectively is Netflix. If you remember, Netflix started as a DVD by mail delivery system. So they had personalization, they had the website, and they found some initial success. But then the next step was pretty obvious. They needed to go over to the internet and start delivering DVDs over the internet. They knew that, but they didn't know exactly what they need to do. So what they did, this was a big, hairy project. So they actually split it into a number of strategic tracks, which they call swim lanes, and they put a team on each one of those, and they put metrics of success on each one of those. If you read the articles of Gibson Biddle, he explained the whole process, and one track was about personalization. One track was about how, do, how are we going to monetize this. One track was how do we ensure that people have instant gratification. Is it downloads, which is was their first guess, or is it streaming? And gradually the shape of the solution emerged. 
but it was a combination of series of opportunities or a big opportunity that had many facets that they did. So one of the things that are important that they did there is to set up regular quarterly and bi-quarterly checkpoints with Gibson and with Reed Hastings to check how the different swim lanes progressing, what's going on there. And some swim lanes were progressing very well and were able to show that there is a way to personalize and there's a way to monetize. While others like social, for example, they were thinking this is going to be a very social thing, turned out to be actually not successful. And that helped them just decide that we're not going to make this a social kind of thing there. It's not going to be a friends sharing videos, which was one of their strategic hypotheses. That's not going to work. So they closed that lane. So continuous check-ins and continuously measuring against predefined criteria of what success is, is very important and incremental investments. So this is a principle that we know very well from startups. A startup starts out with an idea and maybe a very impressive slide deck. And then you give them very little money just to get to the next stage. Then they come back with something a little bit more clear. They have a prototype, they have uh, some market research, they have a clear indication that they found a problem and a solution, you give them a, a bit more money. And then you move on seed, Series A, Series B, etc., based on their traction. That's the key contributing factor there for the investment. So I think strategies should evolve in the same way. We start with a kernel of an idea. We put very few people with very few investment in it. And then incrementally, these people come back with more and more evidence, more traction, that actually there's something there. We're willing to invest more. And many ideas will die along the way because that's just the way it works. And that's essentially a macro version of what we do in the micro inside our product, right? As we develop a product and we have a an idea for a feature, it's an hypothesis. If we do this feature, this will happen, but we need to come with evidence before we go ahead and invest all and go all in on the idea, we need to show some traction. And that's why evidence is so important in my opinion, in product development. And it's so lacking. And that's why I developed the confidence meter and, and the GIST framework in order to inject this element of continuously checking what is the evidence that we're moving in the right direction? What is the evidence that this idea is actually going to matter? And investing, increasing our investment, which often means putting more people on the idea accordingly. So the investment follows confidence, which follows evidence. That's the core principle. So we touched on strategy and how must is a framework to look at that. If I go a little bit deeper, once we have a cohesive strategy and we want to understand how does that break down into initiatives and tasks, I think you also worked on another framework you just mentioned called GIST. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how GIST provides a planning and development framework for that next level of detail? And then I'll have a few follow-up questions around how teams can build their level of confidence in some of the work they're doing. For sure. So just is again, a counter reaction to a lot of stuff that I experience myself and also with my clients, where we start with a roadmap, a bunch of ideas we're convinced about, and then it's all execution. There's 
it's still very much waterfallish because we spend a lot of time on this roadmap. It's based on some strategy, which we already explained. And then we put some person in the middle to turn the roadmap into something that the agile team can consume. And that person is usually called a product manager or now a product owner. You and I are operating in Europe. Product owners are now how these people are called. And it's, it's a combination of two systems from different eras that are fused together using this product management layer. And it's very dissatisfactory to everyone because there's the planners that think in terms of quarters and business results. There's the execution team that is just churning out user stories and tickets. And then there's this person who's super busy running between roadmap meetings and stand-ups and retrospectives and just headless chicken trying to connect all the dots and make everyone happy. And no one's happy. And the product managers especially are not happy because most of them know that they don't spend enough time researching the market, talking to customers, developing ideas and hypotheses, doing validation. There's no time for all this. We're just busy outputting. So I try to help companies embrace the different model that I saw in Google, for example, where we didn't work in this model. And I found that there are four areas of change that they need to focus on. And there are usually four major breakages in one or more of those. One is goal setting and specifically how to focus on outcomes. Another is idea prioritization. And especially there, we need to consider and very strongly. The third is experimentation, which I call steps. Step is a short activity where we develop an idea a little bit, sometimes just in concept, sometimes just as a mock-up, sometimes as a prototype, but we keep developing it later in code and we test it. So we validate the key assumptions behind it, build, measure, learn. By the way, you might notice I didn't invent much. It's just a repackaging of... Nothing ideas. new under the sun, right? Yeah. I just try to condense a lot of the wisdom that comes mm -hmm. from Kagan and other people into a useful framework. And then there's this task layer, which is about how to work with agile teams and actually inject tremendous amount of context into the work and allow them to partake in goal setting, in idea prioritization, in step definition, and especially also in execution and how to turn the execution to be a little bit more about discovery and delivery and not just delivery, not just output which unfortunately is the case in many product teams I see. So that's the JIST framework. What I see a lot, as I mentioned, very dissatisfied product managers and managers because they feel that their engineers are very disengaged. They feel that there's people just care about engineering work. They just care about improving quality and doing these huge projects that kind of take away resources and effort and time from the business goals. And they don't care so much about the business. They don't care about the users. They're always slow to deliver. So I wish I had a euro for every time a manager came to me and told me. You'd be rich. <laughs> yeah. Help me get my, my engineers become more business focused or work faster and harder. And almost always, it's not the fault of the engineers. It's not because they're bad. It's not because they don't care. It's because we're, we completely disconnected them and isolated them from the users, from the business. We're, and we're just trying to create this very sterile environment where all they can get is an injection of requirements and backlogs. And they're just churning out output based on that.
Maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but I say this a lot in Europe, maybe less so in North America, but in Europe, mm -hmm. in Asia, it's a very common phenomenon. So in order to break through this, we need to do a few things. One is these people need to have a lot of context. This is not a new concept that I invented. This was invented by the Prussians in the 19th century when they realized they lost the war to Napoleon because Napoleon enabled his commanders and his soldiers to have some say, allowed them to decide and improvise and gave them just context and missions. And that turned into a concept called mission command. When you give troops or a unit or an army a mission, you need to give, tell them what are they supposed to achieve. Let's say push the enemy behind this line or defend this position. You need to give them exact parameters for success. And that's very similar to objective and key results, if you're noticing. Mm -hmm. And you need to give them a ton of context, explain to them mm -hmm. what's the situation, which army forces are they facing? Why is it important to defend this position or to push the enemy line by this time? What happens if they fail? And all of this is not to enforce on them, to force on them to act in a particular way, but to give them all the tools they need to make good decisions. And a lot of product managers never worked with engineers that actually have a lot of context. I have to tell you, the experience is radically different. You don't need to spend nearly as much time spoon feeding them with requirements, user stories. Correct. They just know what needs to be done. They surprise you and delight you constantly with much better ideas than you could have ever had. And they just code them into the code. They collaborate with the designers. They show it to you. You can, of course, say, yeah, I think this misses the point a little bit and they will fix it happily, but it just happens. So it's really your mission to give them the context and to allow them to break out a little bit from Agile Jail. And the tool I suggest using is, again, this is tied to the GIST framework, it's called the GIST board. It's a very simple board that has three columns. One is about the goals, the key results that the team is committed to this quarter. This should not be a surprise to the team because they should be involved in actually sitting, setting these key results. And I highly recommend no more than four key results, no more than four outcomes per quarter. Even that is really hard for a team to do. Just to clarify, for me, a team is 10 engineers, their PM, their UX designer, etc. So that's column number on the number one on the left. In the middle, you put the ideas you're working on now. And for every key result, you probably want to have between two and five ideas, but just the ones you're testing right now. And then next to them are the steps, those kind of build, measure, learn steps that you're doing. It could be a usability study. It could be just a back of the envelope calculation. It could be data research. It could be a full beta, whatever it is. There should be a team of smaller sub team working on this thing. Just like when we said in must, when we give people an idea, we start by creating a nuclear team of people to just research the idea and develop it. The same concept for every submission, every step, everything we want to validate, we find the right people and we give them ownership of the thing. So that's what I call the step force. So each one of these steps is kicked off by all these people getting around the whiteboard and saying in four weeks from now, we want 50 people to start experiencing this new feature, not all of it, just these scenarios, not scalable, not fully polished. We will develop some UI, but it's, it could be throwaway code. 
That's the scope. And once these people get this and understand and contributing to discussion and they're saying, this is going to be much harder and we need to measure these things. Don't forget about that. They're your partners. You don't need to be the PMs that shepherds them. They already understand. And from there on, it's much, much easier to do the work. Plus you're baking something that is quite missing today. You're baking the need to both build and learn. And I see that a lot of agile teams are really struggling with this because they're all really measured on building. So a positive result of a step is that you will not just create something and ship it. That's not the end of the work at all. You also run the experiment, you collect the data, you analyze it, and you come up with a conclusion. What should we do with this idea? Should we pivot it? Should we dump it? Should we change it somewhat? And those people are contributing to this decision as well. Instead of just having a bunch of mercenaries, coders, designers, mock-up creators, you have discoverers, you have people who are actually taking part in the discovery process and injecting their knowledge and wisdom into it. And that's very empowering for them. And that's also very empowering for the PMs. So that's my attempt to modify how things work at the task level. In parallel, you will need to change the way you work with management and stakeholders as well. All of these steps. All the evidence you generate is something you want to share with them in order to share. You want to play back to them. And because at the end of the day, it will inform the decision making. Exactly. The classic way that things used to work is that they would tell you what to do and you will be like a contractor in house delivering on their business requests. In order to change this, you need to prove to them that you're actually working towards the business goals and you're doing it in a very systematic and scientific way. So you're showing them which ideas you're working on. And again, you can use the GIST board. I've seen PMs just take snapshots of the GIST board and share it. I've seen PMs creating portals, the GIST board, doing bi-weekly newsletters, sharing what's on the GIST board. And they're just telling everyone, you know, we're working towards these three goals. Here's the two ideas we're considering for this goal. Here's what happened. We tested it, turned out not to be a great idea. Here are the results. And you're giving these people a chance to interject and say, disagree with this conclusion. Or sometimes they will come back and say, I suggested this idea and I think you proved it's not so strong. That's the best result you, you can achieve. You, you just get collaboration without trying to influence and force them. So this is the power of evidence. It creates a much more mature dialogue inside the company where people don't just try to convince each other about ideas. People are really ask the question, what evidence do we have? what's most contributing to the business goals or to the user outcomes that we want to see. And that changes the tempo and the environment in a, and the culture in a very positive way, in my opinion. One of the things that resonates a lot is product operators, so PMs within the team, sometimes lacking a way to frame their thinking and a way to present their work to the rest of the organization. And you talked a little bit about how you've seen some PMs using the GIST board, et cetera. I think one of the things I'm also seeing in different product practices, regardless of verticals and company maturities, because product managers are human beings and they come in various shapes or forms. I think one of the challenges I see is that there's a lot of operators out there that aren't fundamentally bad at product management, like they, they are skilled, but they sometimes lack 
confidence in what they're doing and they're not necessarily being empowered or enabled with the right tools. I'm keen to understand and get your point of view based on your experience coaching different teams. How are some of the ways some of these product people are addressing this challenge? And earlier on, we talked a little bit about decision-making and the confidence meter, for example. How are people using tools like this to inform which direction they're going and have more confidence in their craft as product managers? Yeah. First off, it resonates strongly. This question resonates strongly with me. I was in this situation, especially as a young PM, and you're bottom of the stack. You're Everyone's above you, everyone more senior. And I would argue that you still need to be a leader. A product manager is a leadership role. Irrespective of your level of experience and seniority in the company, you are responsible for some area, some part of the product. And in this area, you need to be the expert. You need to be the one actually capable of making the decisions if they let you. You need to know your stuff at a very high level. You need to know the people. You need to collaborate with the other leads. You need to have an engineering lead next to you. I think don't try to work with 12 people all at the same time. Find one who is a person who understands the software on a very good level and can guide other people and make that purchase on your partner. And you two are the leads. And the third lead is usually the head of UX. I've seen too many PMs not making this, not creating this situation and struggling. But your question is more leading up or managing up. How do we do this? I think there's two aspects to this, in my opinion. One is a product manager is often left on their own to figure out things. Sometimes that's like the nature of the job, right? Unfortunately, sometimes it's also because there's lack of coaching from leaders who are not investing time in the practice of coaching. The reasons people, you and I have a job. Also, part of this is very intrinsic to the product manager doing the work day to day. And part of it is once they have, or they find the confidence in doing the job in the right way, how does that then impact the, how they are perceived in the rest of the organization? The focus of my question was more around How do individual contributors build confidence in what they're doing using some of the tools you mentioned? Yeah. First, let me give you the answer that Marty Kagan would probably give you. And I think it's very right. Know your stuff. You need to be an expert on the software, on the product, on the market, on the business, at least at the level that when talking to business people, they understand that you're not clueless because otherwise you'll fall into this category. This is the engineering guy, actually doesn't get our our side of things. We need to tell that person what to do. So you need to be able to speak with everyone at an intelligent level, not to be at their level of expertise, but good enough that they respect you. And that takes time. And until you get to this point, you need to be humble and say, I'm not sure yet. I'm still learning, but try your hardest to pick up your knowledge level as soon as possible. Same with the leaders. You need to understand their company strategy, even if it's not very well communicated, which is often is not the company goals, etc. The other thing is don't try to ever go into a battle of opinions with more senior or influential person because you will lose. I can tell you from my experience, if you do need to, and often you do need to go into disagreement or like you, you're coming at a problem from different sides, try to come with evidence. And that's why evidence is so powerful. So if that person say 
it's a business stakeholder. They come up and say, my most important lead demands this feature. We really have to have this feature. So then you need to lean back on your goals and say, we, we all agree that this, this is going to be our focus. We're trying to do this advancement in this key metrics or solving this key problem that we know will benefit most of our business and our customers. So how does this compare? And they might say, yeah, I still think it's very important. So then you need to show them how you would evaluate this idea compared to others. And if you use something like ICE, that's a very powerful tool. You might say, okay, let's look at your idea. And if our North Star metric or the North Star metric of the company or of that of the team is number of documents created per month or number of transactions or number of freighties, let's see how your idea might contribute. And you come up with guesses for impact, for confidence and for ease. Especially the confidence is very interesting because you might ask them, how do you know that this is actually a great idea? And they will give you the story, the logical explanation and the fact that it was one customer request. I put one customer request, especially for this in the confidence meter. It's not very high confidence. It's a little bit different if you're in a large B2B and that one customer is accounting mm -hmm. for 50% of your income. Okay, <laughs> so then you need to give it more confidence boost. But even then, it's not clear that that company will eventually buy what you develop or that they actually will tell you exactly what they need and what if you build exactly what they ask that will actually serve them there's a lot of and there's always this difference between what people are asking what people are saying they need versus the actual reality of their circumstances and their struggles right yeah. which is where discovery comes in like people are asking for features but often when you do a deep dive of their context their circumstances and struggles you realize this thing that they're asking is not actually the problem that they are trying to solve. True. And that requires some, as you said, discovery, some interviews with that customer and others, understanding the underlying need, thinking if there's other alternative solutions. But all of this takes time. And that person at that point expects you to say, yes, I'm going to build you this feature this quarter. So you're doing the exercise and you can show them how much confidence they should have in this idea based on what they know. And often just the word of one customer asking for it is not sufficient. Sometimes they ask for it, by the way, just because they have an LFP. They just collected all the features from all the leaders and they want to see where you're standing. It's, do you have this, that, or the other? They don't intend to use it even sometimes. Is there strong evidence? And maybe how can we get more evidence? So we can't research every idea. We can't start going into discovery on every idea, but we can have a more nuanced discussion about how an idea stacks up and you can definitely show them that the top ideas you're working on you have much higher confidence in them and evidence to suggest that they're going to create a lot of value for the company so then you're putting this person in a position where they have a lot more context themselves they understand what's going on they understand your decision process as opposed to black box product management which is something that business stakeholders really hate, where you just make decisions, you don't share it with them, you don't tell them, you hide from them the facts. I've seen product managers that really want to hide from the business stakeholders all the context because they're afraid that they will start messing with it. You're super transparent with this person. You completely are honest with them and you're saying, I'm really trying to help here. What do you think? And you might end up with still that person will escalate, this person will still try to push for it. 
but you are reducing the odds and you're maybe even creating some sort of partnership with that person. And the next time they will come to you, they'll try to come with stronger evidence. Or the next time they'll come to you, they will know how you're going to react. So just be consistent. Having goals really helps. Having metrics really helps. And having this strong backbone of discipline, of using confidence to make decisions really helps. It's a cultural chance. You need to manager to back you up. You need your manager's manager to also be on board. But at least at your level, in your domain, you should strive to do the right thing. There's a lot of other techniques involved, but this is just one example. Thank you. In the next segment of the show, I want to ask you about some of the most helpful resources you've used or come across to uh, drive impact as a product person throughout your career. So these could be books, articles, tools, could be anything, but really keen to hear about what are some of these resources? I would love to be very original and give you something no one heard of. This is this like magic that changed <laughs> everything for me and only I know about it. But really, the, I think the most important books you need to read as a product person are first and foremost, The Lean Startup and Inspired by Marty Kagan. As you become more senior, you should probably read Empowered too, because in it, it gives concrete advice for managers of product managers mm-hmm. and how an organization that really understands product management operates. Beyond that, I really like the Lean series that was published like 10 years ago during the period where Lean was hot. But the, these books are packed with really useful information. So if you work in an enterprise, try to read Lean Enterprise. It's a tremendous resource. Every chapter there contains amazing insights and ideas. There's a very good book called Lean Analytics that explains a lot of concepts like the one metrics that matters and metrics trees and other things. If you're in a startup, it's an oldie but a classic. Running Lean by Ash Maouya is a very good book as well. Yeah, I remember reading that. Uh, with respect to tools, I really like the strategizer tools. So again, very classic. I'm an old school guy. I mm-hmm. love the value proposition canvas. It's a really good way for teams to get into the heads of their customers, to develop theories of mind. How are these people actually seeing the world? To expand their view beyond just my features, my product into there's a person there. That person has broader needs, jobs, pains, and gains. And similarly, the business model canvas, it's a super important tool for the strategy work we mentioned. You have an idea. There's an opportunity there. You have an idea. If you come with a 30-page presentation to pitch your idea to management, guess what? At page number two, they will think they understand already what you're trying to say. Then they will start rushing you along to page 15, back, the whole thing will get randomized and they will not understand exactly what you're proposing and you will get very frustrated. If you create a business model canvas with one page, just in three minutes, just ask for three minutes uninterrupted, you will be able to explain the entire idea to them. Super powerful communication tool. Then you'll have a much better kind of option for discussion with more context. Assumption maps already also a very good tool to service under assumptions and risks in ideas by David J. Bland. And as I said, I developed my own tools. So I recommend to everyone to just check out my site, itamargilad.com slash resources. Of course, the link uh, in the show notes as well. 
Ah, oh, perfect. And these are free resources. You can download them. You have the confidence meter, you have the gist board that we mentioned and a couple more things, but there's so much more. There's, <laughs> the world is full of frameworks. I know. Right. Thank you. Next question. What would you say have been the key accelerators in your career? I think choosing the right companies. I can definitely see the difference when I went to a not so good company and a really good company in how much I learned and how much positive traits I picked up. Sometimes you're faced with a position of choosing between a company that you feel is so the culture is not perfect, but they are willing to make you more senior, or you can take a less junior role in a well-established company or even a small company, but you know they're good. I would take the second one because being around good people, smart people who, who can teach you things is by far the biggest accelerator you can do. You can read all the books you like. If you have a really good manager, if you have a really good set of colleagues, you will learn so much more than anything else. A lot of my advice is not my own. I learned this from people around me. Be very specific about your career choices. That would be my suggestion. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. What advice would you give your early career self? I'm originally an engineer. And I think I stayed at heart an engineer in the sense that my soft skills and my politics were always pretty rough. I would probably go to my younger self and say, work on this. These are much more important than you think. And they will unlock a lot of doors for you. If people like you more and, and you are better at empathizing and influencing and all these very important things, as a PM, these are vital. Other things are important as well. Don't just be an empty suit, just as someone was really good at uh, motivating people but without all skill, but the soft skills are really good. Another thing that I learned is that sometimes I tend to stay in a job, overstay my term. Like sometimes you feel like you're not excited anymore to come to work. You're not learning as much. You're not contributing as, as much. And guess what? You're not the only one who notices this. Your manager will notice, your colleagues will notice. It's time to switch. And I usually overstayed my welcome in this sense. So know when to leave. And the last advice, which is actually taken from another one of my favorite books, Thinking Fast and Slow, is don't play it safe. Try to take some risks. They don't have to be big risks, but continuously take some calculated risks. Some things play safe, but keep having this channel of, of risky things. And that actually gives you optionality, again, to actually level up more than if you just play it safe always. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Now on to my two favorite questions of the show, which have nothing to do with product. I'll ask you to imagine that you're stranded on a deserted island and you can have the two following things. One, a book. Which book would you take? And two, an endless supply of one specific dish for all meals going forward. What would that dish be? So let's start with a book. The book. All right. So reflecting back on which books I tend to go back and reread every few years, there's a couple that stand out as 100 Years of Solitude, which is an amazing book. And uh, yeah, I'm a nerd. Lord of the Rings. I keep reading it. I read it when I was a child and ever since then I read it dozens of times. Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's a toss between the two, but probably Lord of the Rings. So you, I'm assuming you have the complete works. I do in Hebrew, by the way. So it's a wow. translation. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Still um, great books, honestly. I think yeah. 
with all due respect to the fact that it's fantasy and all, I think it's they're also very well written and it's it's amazing. Super well written, and I think I'm very I'm always in like awe of the ability to create complete universes out of sheer imagination. Do you know what I mean? With that level yeah. of detail is yeah. just mind boggling. There's a lot of history behind why Tolkien created this. And he was, of course, a linguist, so he invented entire languages as well, which are inspired by Nordic languages. And it's the level of detail is just amazing. And it's especially amazing that he was able to produce this work while actually being, this was like his hobby, basically. He was a linguist mostly and a very famous one at that. So really imp impressive stuff. Thank you. What about the dish? Uh, this will be a shock, but the salad, actually. I'm Israeli, okay. and Israelis eat this Israeli salad. It's a Mediterranean salad, just our version of it. It's just diced vegetables with olive oil and some salt and some, maybe something on the side, but this is like a deserted island. So we eat this breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't know why we're so obsessed with this particular salad. If you traveled in Asia or South America, places where there's a lot of Israeli backpackers, you will find local restaurants advertising, we have Israeli salad. Seriously. Oh, wow. Yeah, this yeah. sounds, it sounds like Israeli kimchi because Korean people eat kimchi with literally everything. It's like the side they eat with every meal. So I'm picturing like an Israeli version of kimchi. It's, it's very much like this without the extra flavor and smell. Itamar, <laughs> hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. If people want to get in touch with you, can they reach out on LinkedIn? Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. I assume we will share the link. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. And also feel free to visit my website, itamargila.com. And there's also other ways to interact with me there. Brilliant. We'll put all of this in the show notes. Thank you again so much for taking the time to do this. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.